Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. And we would like to welcome you to a very special episode of the Radical AI podcast. So we are here today actually with a third co-host for this episode. Uh, It is Olivia Gamblin, who is an AI ethicist and the CEO of Ethical Intelligence. And the reason why we brought Olivia on, besides her being a good friend and colleague, in this past week, her organization, Ethical Intelligence, put on an amazing event entitled AI and Racial Bias Workshop with Renee Cummings. So Olivia, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dylan and Jess. I'm so excited to be here. And before we talk about the event and your work with Ethical Intelligence, we first need to introduce Renee and her work as this episode in place of the normal interview will actually be airing the talk that she gave during Ethical Intelligence's workshop. So Renee Cummings is the CEO of Urban AI. Renee is a criminologist, criminal psychologist, AI ethicist, and AI strategist. She specializes in AI for social good, justice-oriented AI design, social justice in AI policy and governance, and using AI to save lives. Committed to using AI to empower and transform communities, Renee is helping governments and organizations navigate the AI landscape and develop future AI leaders. Uh, So as Jess mentioned, the format of this episode is going to be a little bit different. Uh, We're going to talk to Olivia a bit first in this intro about why... uh, ethical intelligence wanted to put on this workshop and why it was important uh, for them to sponsor this work. Uh, Then we're going to listen, as just said, to Renee's presentation that she gave at this workshop. And then we're going to debrief along with Olivia following that recording. So Olivia, I'm going to start off with the question that I just said you were going to talk about, uh, which is why for you uh, as the CEO of Ethical Intelligence, was it so important to have Renee come do this uh, workshop and for you all to put this on? Yeah, so I'm going to take a a high level step back real quick. So overall with Ethical Intelligence, we have an educational series that we've just started called Building Ethical Intelligence. And it's literally targeted at building this, your ethical reasoning abilities. Um, It's comprised of a few different pieces. And one of those pieces is a workshop. Um, And the whole point of the workshop is to bring people together to discuss uh, either a prevalent piece of technology or a prevalent issue. And in light of the Black Lives Matter movement, we wanted to show solidarity in some way that stuck true to both what we do at Ethical Intelligence, but also was within our our capacity to actually have some type of impact. So it was actually my team and I, we sat down and we went, well, we've got a workshop scheduled in the first place um, coming up. And we think it would be amazing if we could actually focus in on racial bias specifically in light of everything that's going on. It's very topical um, and people need to have that conversation. So, and we have the ability to create that space for that conversation. And so one thing led to another and we went, well, Renee's perfect for this. Her background covers both the criminology aspect as well as an AI ethics aspect. Um, She's become a a very strong voice in the community. So we were honored when we reached out and she said, yep, I'm I'm in. Uh, She's straight to the point. She goes, yep, okay, done. What do you need from me? 
and that's that's really how this event came about. For uh, folks, I realize that Jess and I know a lot about ethical intelligence as an organization, uh, but for, for folks who may not have heard of you all, could you say a little bit about who you are, what you do, where you're based, et cetera? Yeah, so we are ethical intelligence. You can call us EI for short. Um, we know that ethical intelligence is a, is a, is a mouthful, uh, but essentially we are internationally based. So we cover everywhere from the US to the UK to Europe, um, a bit into Asia as we're going, but we are an ethics firm. Um, right now, there are a few of us growing up into this space in AI ethics. It's a brand new sector um, that we're paving the way into. So what we try and do specifically is bridge this gap that we've come to realize is between the research and academics that's so there's a wealth of knowledge in AI ethics and the issues and, and, and the solutions, but there's a gap between what's sitting in academia and what's actually being applied in industry. On the other hand, you've got industry going, okay, we've got all these questions, um, but no idea how to answer them. So we're trying to position right in between that to ease that, that transition over and make sure that all of that impactful research and information that's sitting in academia is getting practically applied in our day-to-day -day technology. And we saw that today with the amazing event that we are all just fresh coming off of right now uh, with Renee. And so without further ado, we are going to play back uh, Renee's talk from the event. And then following that, we will have a debrief and group discussion with Olivia. So we're talking about racial bias and we're talking about racial bias and artificial intelligence. And I said, you know, what is happening right now when it comes to the protest action that we're seeing on the streets of America, action that is actually uh, spilled onto streets in cities uh, all over the world. We are seeing also the, the most diverse crowd of protesters ever and a global level of solidarity that has never really been seen before. And I think what this protest action is asking every industry is what are you going to do? And this is why I said this is a critical moment for artificial intelligence. So as we move into the first slide, what we are speaking about and what we are seeing with the pandemic called COVID-19, there's also this pandemic called racism. And with that pandemic of racism, there's also a pandemic of pain. And I think that pain is which we have all been experiencing, uh, some of us vicariously, some of us on the streets of the U.S., is really connected to the anger, the intergenerational anger and that free-floating anger that many individuals in our society have felt for a very long time. And when you combine that anger with grief, and in many of the cases that we have seen where there has been situations of police uh, brutality and police violence, there's also been no closure. And with that, all of this happening in the context of healthcare disparities, because many of the same communities, communities of color, having a higher exposure uh, levels, uh, susceptibility levels, of course, with the uh, pre-existing conditions that create the context for COVID-19. We have seen issues now with mental health financial health, uh, isolation, and cultural dislocation, and intergenerational trauma with the criminalization of color, and all of this leading to uh, post-traumatic stress disorder that is correlated to systemic racism. So now we talk about the global response to systemic racism, and that global response, so you can change the slides, 
is really creating um, an outpour of, of support. And throughout the uh, literature and throughout uh, uh, many of the articles that we're seeing in the media, there is a question being raised, whether the support that we are seeing now from big tech, whether that is genuine or just corporate in general, whether that is genuine or whether it is linked to some sort of a fear or guilt or shame. But there is a global solidarity and that solidarity is many of the brands are now aligning themselves with social justice and really supporting many of the uh, social justice movements that have been advocating for uh, interventions and approaches that deal with uh, systemic racism. We've also seen a, a recognizing and a recognition of, of what systemic racism is and how it impacts us at every level in, in society. And of course, the uh, advocating for, for social justice and a renewed commitment among many of the uh, big tech companies to investing in black talent or to now creating programs to support diversity and inclusion. And when we think about systemic racism in AI, you can move the slide, we recognize that uh, there is a system and there is a system so deeply rooted that enables a systemic racism. And we've got to ask ourselves from an AI perspective, from a tech perspective, what are the parallel systems that we have been creating that support uh, systemic racism? What are the structures that we have in place in the organization, in the design, in the development, in the deployment of AI? Those structures that preserve systemic racism. And what about the political forces? We know that design is something that is very political. And in the politics of design, what we do see are social impacts that may not be reversible. So what are the social forces that encourage systemic racism? And at various levels, what are the privileges that excuse it in the behaviors, in the, the language, in the ways in which things are framed? And of course, the financial inequalities that sustain the system. So as we think about racial bias, you can move the slide, um, and we think about how racial bias really informs implicit bias. And implicit bias really refers to those attitudes and stereotypes that affect our understanding, our actions, our decisions. And when we think about the design process of AI, we've got to ask ourselves, who's making those decisions? Who's at the table when those decisions are being made? How diverse is the mix when it comes to the design, the development, or the deployment of the technologies that we are seeing? And we've got to think about it, stereotypes. How do stereotypes filter into the design process? And we know that stereotypes are really these fixed, oversimplified images and ideas of a person or a group. And many of the stereotypes, and we've seen some of the stereotypes, um, particularly when it comes to the context of, of police violence and when it comes to the context of police brutality and many of the uh, videos that have been circulating on uh, social media that has brought this um, whole situation that was percolating to uh, really uh, boil over to become very volcanic. We see stereotypes, particularly when it comes to, let's say, African-American. Uh, strength, speed, physically threatening, angry, must be controlled by aggression, 
and we see the integration of these multiple pieces of, of misinformation creating uh, an image, particularly um, now that we're dealing with law enforcement, in the minds of, of, of those individuals in how we react or how we interact with a particular group. So when we think of systemic racism and we think of implicit bias and we think of subconscious biases, we, we come to a place where, where many psychologists and, and many psychiatrists and have been uh, trying to come up with sort of a, a multicultural sort of spyglass into deconstructing this idea of, of systemic racism. And many uh, fraternities and many fields have offered many uh, sort of uh, philosophies. There has been the uh, systemic racism as a form of mental health, as a form of, of pathology, as something that is uh, so deeply rooted that uh, it would probably take forever to pull it out. Um, there's been neuroscience that has been speaking about creating a pill, a pill to, uh, to treat with uh, privilege and a, a pill to treat with uh, prejudices. So there's been some work happening in the background, but what we realize that it is a combination probably of, of nature and nurture, or it's just uh, social systems that are, are so deeply ingrained that it's really difficult to treat with. So uh, there is a lot of talk about that sort of uh, deeply rooted uh, hate that we see and what we see from our neuroscience and the research, it suggests that it is an uncomfortable reality and that ending something like systemic racism can be achieved, but not just through uh, counseling and, and therapeutic uh, sessions or anti-bias training, but really some difficult work that we've got to do as a society. So we know that when it comes to systemic racism and when it comes to these deeply rooted uh, issues that many of us don't uh, know we have or, or may not think we have them, but uh, sometimes they prop up so, so easily and, and so quickly subconsciously. And, and this really looks at the question of humanity and, and how do we perceive a human being? And it speaks about empathy and how do we use empathy even from the perspective of AI in our design processes at every stage of the life cycle? Are we paying attention to these really deep-rooted issues? And, and how are they informing the ways in which we create uh, technology to uh, interact with uh, society? So we know what implicit bias is. We know uh, it is also considered really unconscious bias. We know that it operates outside of our awareness and it could be in direct contradiction to our own belief system, meaning that we many times we, we don't believe that we have uh, biases, but we all do, each and every one of us. And I think what makes implicit bias so dangerous is that it slips into our affect and our behavior automatically. But the thing is, and the big question remains, is that the exact sequence of mental events that create bias is still unanswered. So what have we seen, uh, particularly in the past, when it comes to AI and some of the mistakes that AI uh, has probably made uh, along the way? We have seen new technology creating old divisions. So facial recognition that has misidentified people of color and, and women. And, and of course, now we saw that IBM and Microsoft saying that they are going to discontinue the development of that technology. Amazon, who has been probably the greatest supplier to law enforcement across the world, saying that it's going to put a moratorium on it. The CEO of IBM saying that 
we do not support technologies that promote uh, racial injustice and that they are now committed to social justice and really taking an honest and open approach to understanding some of the biases that are created with technology or something like computer vision uh, for self-driving cars that is challenged when it comes to spotting pedestrians of a darker skin tone. And what about airport scanners that have uh, difficulties dealing with, with black hairstyles or soft uh, credit scores that correlate to racially segregated neighborhoods or lending tools that charge higher interest rates to uh, Hispanic and African Americans. So these are things we've got to think about. And we've got to think about how new technology is really creating those old divisions. But the big question is, how do we reprogram centuries, centuries of systemic racism? And, and the basis of that is the, the presumptions, the assumptions, the confidence in which uh, bias is played out. Combine that to sometimes basic ignorance and uh, systems that are really professional and uh, institutional and uh, networks, institutional racism, that also crystallize levels of, of privilege. And we've got to think about these, particularly within the context of AI, as we move now to, to deploy this technology in so many unique ways because of the requirements of, of COVID-19. And when we talk about systemic racism, and particularly now, you've probably been hearing about two pandemics. The pandemic, of course, of uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic of racism. And I think what they do uh, have there is that they are being now seen as public health challenges and requiring an epidemiological intervention that is very, very strategic, that really breaks the system down and really applies an intervention at every level of the system. So when it comes to neuroscience, you know, neuroscience has really exposed the shortcomings of the current approaches to combating racism. And it has revealed that curing hate is possible, theoretically, but under the right circumstances. But I think we're still trying to negotiate what those circumstances are. And of course, with mental effort and enough mental effort. But the question becomes, are we prepared as a world, as our own society, as our own groups, as our own organizations, to, to make that mental effort. And what neuroscience is saying is that we can unlearn it. We can unlearn it if we want to, as we have unlearned our violence in, in our society, which is a, a really a, a constant uh, type of learning. But we have seen that many people exposed to violence early in life have been able to unlearn that and really change their lives. So studies have really, looked at it, and I think most of the studies have looked at uh, that sort of uh, interaction, I guess, with uh, black men and, and, and uh, people of color in general, I and mean, many of the studies in neuroscience saying that there is this, this just natural fear that uh, comes into the mind, and, and they've seen it through the brain imaging and the brain fingerprinting, uh, how the mind works and how the mind reacts uh, to fear in that regard. But there have been some studies that have given us some sort of a temporary relief. And there's one in particular that's always uh, used by uh, Calvin Lye, I think, uh, from Stanford. And what he did is he looked at uh, nearly 23 uh, 
thousand people. And uh, what he did in his experiment, uh, he uh, created a, a scenario in one experiment where uh, researchers asked subjects to imagine being kidnapped by an evil middle-aged white man only to be saved by a dashing young black hero. Within minutes, uh, the uh, subjects decreased the intensity of their biases and the speed at which those prejudices were uh, associated um, by, by 50%. However, the, the catch there was just after a couple of days, he said that those effects uh, faded away. So what we have seen over the last probably uh, 20 years is that implicit bias, uh, which turned into diversity training, uh, really has not worked, really has not worked in the workplace. And over $8 billion has been spent by tech in the last uh, 10 years to really introduce and sustain diversity training. But what the studies have shown us is that encouraging participants to embrace in uh, diversity training is not always that effective. And many times it really backfires because you don't get the requisite levels of honesty that's required and that people sometimes become uh, really uh, defensive and uh, divided. So there's been a lot of work. So I think in any and every tech company, there's been an extraordinary amount of work when it comes to implicit bias. But what we've seen is that although these things have been tried, they've really not been tested because the research is not there. There's one psychologist out of Princeton, uh, Betsy uh, Patrick, who reviewed hundreds of interventions designed to reduce prejudice and found that only 11% of all experimental efforts were tested outside of the lab. And few corporate training sessions, particularly in tech, were ever evaluated. So we've seen billions being spent on mandated employee training on racial sensitivity, diversity awareness, compliance, anti-discrimination laws and lessons on how to integrate a better workplace with diversity and inclusion. But what we have seen, it's not been working. And many of you may have been already exposed uh, to the implicit association test, which is widely used. And uh, what it does, it measures how our, our mental associations can influence behavior and how our mind links concepts and um, assessments and stereotypes about other people. And uh, this test has been given out so many times. And the only thing that we know really about the test is that it is flawed. The results are questionable. It is still, there is still a lot of skepticism around it. Uh, the scores are not stable. Uh, the low test, uh, retest reliability, uh, there are different scores when you apply it, depending on who does it. And, uh, the meta-analyses show weak relationship between the scores and uh, behaviors. So it comes back to decision-making. And one of the things that we do in AI is that we make some very big decisions. And what I'm hoping that this talk will uh, make all of us think about is when we are in that position to make those decisions, how conscious are we? Right? How vigilant are we when it comes to the ways in which we are going to use data? Because we've got to think about fairness when it comes to making those decisions. So when it comes to database discrimination, and, and this is where AI is really now at the fore, 
what we have seen historically in AI is that there's been a denying of historically disadvantaged and vulnerable groups from full participation because of the biased data sets, because of the widespread biases that persist in society that are deeply baked into the data that we often use. And those pre-existing patterns of exclusion and inequality that are also in the data and how AI has amplified historical and institutional discrimination and default discrimination. How does that slip so easily into the design process where many of us in the world of AI ethics, we speak about it as unintended consequences, but for those groups that are affected, those consequences that we call unintended feel very, very intended. And we've got to speak about engineered inequality, which leads us into how structural racism rears its ugly head in AI. And, and what do we see? We've seen it when it comes to AI, digital bias, digital discrimination, digital marginalization, digital profiling, particularly with big data policing, digital redlining, we see it again and again and again in, in finance, in insurance, uh, mortgage, loans, banking, all of them. Uh, digital, digital victimization, and, and we see all of this in the space of AI, and we've got to ask ourselves, what are we going to do about it? So when we talk about these biased databases, we, we've got to ask ourselves about the many racialized predictions that we have seen in the criminal justice system, in, in law enforcement, in, in healthcare, in, in finance. We've got to ask ourselves, how do these biases slip through the back door of design optimization? And that's a big question that Ruha Benjamin asks in her book, The New Jim Code, which is really, really significant at this moment. And she speaks about engineered inequality and, and how we do these things subconsciously and, and technological benevolence. When we, we design technology, thinking that we are doing it to help, thinking we're doing good technology that really does not help. And we've got to think about the hidden effects of algorithms and algorithms of oppression and Sophia Noble, if you've read her book, she looks at that. She looks at how algorithms create racial disparities and how they support economic disparities and how they encourage through the processes re-victimization and furthermore marginalization and how algorithms and AI now creating new types of, of systemic discrimination and now several levels of discrimination, what we call polyvictimization. So we've got to think about that as well. And we've got to ask ourselves, how raw is raw data? Machine learning relies on these large, oftentimes very uh, problematic uh, uh, data sets because they, they really need to be treated with uh, some level of, of consciousness. And, and requisite levels of vigilance that we can understand the racial, economic, and gendered biases and those deeply ingrained cultural prejudices and those structural hierarchies that are in 
uh, baked into the uh, processes. And now predictive policing is the one that, you know, we know the example, we've seen what's happening with uh, policing, but we also know that these calls to defund the police or to reimagine policing or to reinvent policing may create a, a real heavy over-reliance now on AI to come up with more strategies to uh, really change the dynamic or enhance the relationship between police and communities all across the world. So we've got to be particularly vigilant right now because what we may see is an expansion of, of big data policing. We may see uh, more uh, rigorous approaches to uh, use uh, predictive analytics to police communities. And we've got to think about that. We've got to think about over-policing. We've got to think about uh, this level of intense and uh, excessive surveillance of, of communities of color. And we've also got to think about how we design these tools because what we have seen to date would be all the big data policing tools are being designed to treat with street crime. But we know financial crime, right? We know financial crime, what we call the crimes of the suites are also big crimes, but we're not seeing all of those apps. I think there's probably one uh, designed by some sociologists to track financial crimes in Manhattan. We've got to look at the traditional approach that we use in training classification models for predictive policing, geospatial, historic crime data. All of these things are just really, you know, really saturated with systemic racism. And I was reading an article maybe about two days ago about the gaming industry. And it was showing you that in the gaming industry, I'm not highlighting any one industry, I just felt this was uh, really uh, a, a very salient point now, where they showed you that given the fact that young black and Latinx youth use these games uh, at a higher percentage and a higher rate than anyone else, but yet the characters in the gaming industry really were not representative of the diversity that we are actually seeing by the users. So the creators are not as diverse, but the individuals who are consuming, of course, very diverse. And I think the, uh, one of the individuals or the experts asked a very pertinent question. Why can't black characters ride dragons? And I think that that is really, really deep. And we have got to think about that. Uh, when we are designing and when we are really coming up with those ideas. You could change the slide. Uh, so we are obligated, I think, when it comes to AI, we are definitely obligated when it comes to AI ethics and the work that we are doing not to repeat the mistakes of the past. Why use new technology? to create old division. So I think we have got to reduce the disparity caused by human biases. We've got to do things to increase due diligence, due process, and duty of care. We've got to use AI to create the kinds of protections that are required against bias and unfairness. We've got to prevent algorithms from perpetrating our human and societal biases. We've got to collaborate with diverse researchers and policymakers, you know, researchers and engineers must work closely together because I think we have a responsibility when it comes to dismantling uh, these systems and ensuring that they're not rebuilt in a digital space. We've got to look at those best practices 
and we've got to really identify multidisciplinary research to really support a more forward thinking and a more social justice approach to the ways in which algorithms are used. And uh, we have got to think about what we are doing, what we are doing. And as we move to reimagine AI, I ask you, what is the challenge? You know, what is stopping us from coding diversity? and coding equity, and coding inclusion, and coding fairness, and coding context, and visibility, and coding empathy, because AI is still about humanity. So I think at this moment, what is required of us would be honesty, because with honesty, there could be healing, and there could be moving forward. We've also got to be introspective and reflective and understand that these conversations are sometimes uncomfortable but in discomfort we can come up with the solutions that are required and as we move forward as an industry and as a fraternity we've got to ask ourselves what do we plan to do and whatever changes that we decide to make as individuals and organizations and corporations. They have got to be sustained changes. So we've got to look at the boardroom. We've got to look at the C-suite. And we've got to look around every time we're in that room and ask ourselves, who are the people next to us? What are their belief systems? And do we have the right mix at this table to serve humanity at this time? Thank you very much. We want to thank Renee again for that fabulous, invigorating, powerful talk. So uh, Olivia, what are some of your takeaways uh, from that event? Um, so part of the event, after we had Renee's talk, we, we did these breakout group discussions. And one of my favorite takeaways comes out of the group discussion I was having based off of Renee's talk, um, where Renee is advocating for the need to ask questions. Um, and those questions will lead to people steps, taking a step back and considering their technology, considering their actions, uh, often from a different lens. And that, that different lens is what's going to start making the impact. Um, and one of the takeaways off of that was in my group discussion, we were talking about how people often feel afraid if they're not from a tech technological background of questioning tech in the first place, because they think, oh, I'm not an expert in this. Uh, I don't understand tech. So I, I have no right to have a question. Um, but we sat down and we went, no, that's, that's not true. Actually, the people not involved in tech should be the ones really asking those questions because they're taking new perspectives into the conversation and essentially forcing the people that work in tech out of that, that mindset, that bubble to consider the wider picture. So for me, building off of Renee's advocacy to ask questions and have your voice heard being built into as well, um, asking that specifically in a tech setting. Yeah, that, I think I actually had a similar outcome in, in my breakout group. So for context, both Dylan and I were conducting uh, discussions and helping uh, create 
dialogue and conversation in some of the breakout rooms of our own. And in my breakout room, uh, we also talked a lot about this idea of like taking agency and really taking individual action. And especially because the people that were in my discussion group, they didn't really come from technical backgrounds. And so they were feeling the sense of responsibility, like a lot of people at this event were, but they didn't know what to do with that. And they didn't feel like they could really do anything with that. And we sort of uh, played with this idea of like, is it really worth it to take individual action and to stop using apps that are collecting our data? Is it really making that big of a difference or should we just be joining these bigger movements that are clearly making uh, much more steps towards systemic change than we could as individual entities? And then after we uh, dissected the idea a little bit more, we, we realized that no, it is important. It's important to take action as an individual. It's important to claim agency over your own data, how it's being collected, how it's being used. And those small actions will eventually compile and uh, bring us towards the greater systemic change that we're looking for. And it, it needs to start somewhere. So we can't just take a step back and say that nothing that we do matters in the long run. We need to actually recognize that we, we can make a change at, a, at an individual level. And um, it just, it starts by, by small pieces of action. And one uh, quote that I pulled uh, from Renee's talk that really has stuck with me um, in both empowering and challenging ways is when she said, why create new technologies to recreate old divisions? And for me, um, I think this kind of gets to the heart of both what the next steps are um, and also how difficult it is to uproot these uh, systemic divisions that are so historically oriented, uh, especially in terms of racism and sexism. Um, and they're embedded in these technological uh, situations and systems. But really, like what it's going to take is for us to look back at ourselves and look in the mirror and uh, for us to do some really difficult you know, soul work um, to uproot those those systems of uh, oppression. And I'm curious, Olivia, um, what what do you hope that folks do with this with this talk? Uh, since now you have you have birthed it along with Renee, and you've brought it out into the world. Um, what uh, what do you hope that people do in terms of like application? Coming back to first of all, having the courage to ask questions specifically in technology. I mean, technology is just an echo of who we are as humans. So being able to ask questions towards technology is actually being able to ask questions back towards who we are as humans. Um, right now, it's a very charged conversation. And, and people, even, even in, in the group discussions, I felt people kind of tiptoeing around it until it established this, 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 this even playing ground where everyone went, okay, you know what? We all want the same end goal. And none of us really know how to get there. But as we have this conversation and this discussion, we, we start to understand how to get there. So my hope is that this, this specific event, um, as well as events to come, and hopefully it inspired more events to come in the first place, but inspired discussions. Because at the end of the day, when you bring people together with the same end goal, no matter what the background is, that's when you get the really interesting solutions and the ideas flowing. We, we're not going to see change if we don't if we don't actually sit down and, and discuss what change we want to see. I loved how at the end of at the end of that workshop, we had Renee talking about how she sees this as a movement, and you just saw everyone's heads nodding of like, yeah, this is a community, this is a group, 
and our voices are coming together. There, you, after such a heavy workshop that was a very heavy topic, we still came out on the other end with hope. Um, hope that what we're discussing won't stay just in this virtual little Zoom bubble, um, but then it'll actually move on to, it, to impact outside of that. So I think echoing what Renee said, this is a movement and we are coming together in this movement and there are people leading it, but it's, it's leading it in terms of actually being able to pull together everyone's interests and everyone's voices into one loud amplified voice. And we invite our listeners to, of course, support uh, Renee and her scholarship and her work with Urban AI. Um, and if Olivia, if people want to help join in in your movement on ethical AI, is there a place that they can find you or uh, find more events such as this wonderful event with Renee uh, going forward? Yeah, absolutely. Check us out on Twitter. You can follow us at ethicalai underscore co or find us, find our website at www.ethicalintelligence.co. We have constant updates in terms of the different events we're throwing. Um, usually revolves around webinars and topics and workshops and podcasts and all that good stuff. Well, Olivia, thank you so much for coming on and being our very first guest host on the podcast. And thank you so much for all the work that you're doing with Ethical Intelligence. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's been great. Absolutely. It was our pleasure. So for more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at RadicalAI.org. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod. And as always... Wait, Jess, I'm wondering, Olivia, do you want to do you want to do the stay radical? You should do the yes. stay radical. Yeah, okay. How do how do I do it? Just jump in with you guys? So 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 Jess says, and as always, and then you say stay radical. Okay, just me? Yeah. Okay. And as always. Stay radical. Yeah. Nice job, Thank you. Olivia. Thank you. Great. Perfect. It's yeah, spreading. Exactly. <laughs> like a newscaster. And tune in next week. <laughs>